Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Each month, we'll be looking at the malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Medical Malpractice with Alex Maldanovich. Alex is a very successful lawyer with a personal injury group at Thompson Rogers firm. I've known him for several years, and he's recently been through a, cu- a tough couple of years and fought his way back to his pro- professional career. I'm thrilled to say that he really is back full-time lawyering now and living and looking towards the future. So don't miss listening to that podcast. It was I enjoyed every single second of talking to him. It's open, it's raw, it's vulnerable, but it's also got a really happy ending as he finds his way back to the work that he loves. So today in this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about more about Alex and the person that he is away from the job of being a lawyer. And there are some, even though I've known Alex for 15 years, I've never asked him most of these questions that are on this list. So I am also dying to hear the answer to some of them. So please welcome back, Alex. Hi, Chris. Hi. Thanks again <laughs> so much for being here. Let's just rip right into it because I know right. you and I could talk a lot about all kinds all of right. things. Talk to me. Like I'm always in awe of people who go into law, number one, because to me, like it just seems like a difficult, difficult journey. And medical malpractice is the toughest of the tough, in my view. What got you into this incredibly tough area of law? I was... Um... Do you remember that TV show St. Elsewhere? Loved it. I loved St. Elsewhere. So um, I, as a kid, I was kind of a geek. I was really into medicine. I really was interested in, in all things medicine. Um, And so I would, I would go and I, I, for example, I bought like a old copy of Grey's Anatomy and I would take that with me everywhere. I would read Grey's Anatomy, like a complete and utter dork that I was <laughs> seven, 16 or 17. Um, then I started, uh, I started volunteering um, at hospitals in my community. Um, I, I worked um, in the emergency department at North York General Hospital. I worked in um, one of their labs. Um, and so I, I did, that's how I spent my weekends and, and, and it sort of became a thing. Um, I went into undergrad, I I studied biochemistry. And at the same time that I was doing my undergrad, I was working um, in the Canadian Armed Forces as a medic, um, sort of part time spending my summers doing that, um, or at least one summer doing that and then and then um, continuing my my sort of studies at at Mac. Um, And then sort of, and I always thought that I wanted to go into medicine, but I had this weird um, final year at McMaster where I started taking, I needed a whole bunch of courses, uh, optional courses. So I took a philosophy of law course and a critical thinking course. And I just found it to be really uh, fundamentally changing for me. I just, I was fascinated by it. Um, And my professor said, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you think about law school or take the LSAT? So I did and got into law school and, and when I started law school, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, but I, I, 
I, I was missing that science, that medicine stuff. And uh, when an opportunity, I was in the States and Cleveland at the time, an opportunity came up to work for a medical malpractice defense firm. I took that. Um, and then I came back to Canada and got my, my law degree here as well at Western. And I, I interviewed at um, McCarthy Tatro. All I wanted to do was medical malpractice. Like that's at that point, that's all I wanted to do. I was, I was just hooked. Um, it was at that point I was interested in doing defense work. Um, and so I started working at McCarthy's and I really enjoyed it, but there was just sort of something, uh, what I wasn't getting on my feet as much as I wanted to there. Um, and I wanted to change gears. So it ended up, uh, moving to Thompson Rogers in, in September of 2003, um, knowing the firm because I worked against them on, on files when I was defending doctors, um, I moved over to Thompson Rogers and I've been ever there, there ever since. And it was kind of, it just, it just fit with everything I wanted to do. So it was, it was a very early trajectory for me when I, I thought it was going to go into medicine and then it went into the other way and defending doctors. And then now, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm suing, <laughs> suing doctors and hospitals and nurses and uh, not, not exactly the course that I had thought it would be, but it's certainly, it's certainly there in that range. I'd say it looks really good on you too. You're very comfortable in both worlds, in my mind, in medicine and law. You know, your knowledge base is deep in both areas. So I, it seems like it's a really good fit for you. I'm always yeah. surprised at how many people seem to just fall into law. You know, it's not like right. something happens and then there's a moment and they try this and then they pass the LSAT and boom, off yeah. they go. It's yeah. I've heard so many stories like that. My dad always wanted to be a, me to be a lawyer because I was very, you know, I was very sort of vocal. Even as a kid, I was, you know, I would debate people. I'd like to debate. I like to do those kinds of things. And, and I like to write a lot. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I like science, uh, although I have to say I was better at the writing than I was at the science. <laughs> so yeah. probably a good thing that I went into law after all. Right. That you're not some kind of a crazy scientist doctor in the background. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you as a kid, since you brought it up there, because um, I've never asked anybody in the podcast this question ever, but because <laughs> I know you as an adult, yeah. um, I would love to hear what you were like as a kid. Oh, man. Uh, well, I guess it depends on what time you catch me. I was a really shy kid, so I was an immigrant kid and, and so English wasn't my first language. I was four years old when my parents and I moved here from Serbia. So um, I think I was initially quite shy and my parents well, always wanted me to sort of open up. Well, <laughs> I guess they, they succeeded in that. Um, so they did. <laughs> they sent me to um, to the Toronto School of Drama. It was like this little um, place at Young and Bloor. It was this um, Marjorie Purvey was like a, a former Canadian actress in radio and and, um, and, and television. And she ran a, a school there for kids for theater studies. And I started doing that every Saturday morning, my mom would drive me from from Scarborough to downtown. And, and I would do like two or three hours of that every Saturday morning, which I at the time hated it. Uh, but we would put on these radio plays, and sometimes we do stage plays. And then, you know, once or twice a year, we'd have like a production where the parents would come and watch. And I think that kind of opened me up a little bit. I also started playing um, a lot of sports, um, tennis and water polo growing up. Um, and so it just sort of opened me up to that um, side of things as well. Um, so I went from, I think, being a fairly shy, um, introspective kid who liked to read books a lot uh, to someone who was a little more outgoing. Um, 
by the time I was in high school, I think that was pretty much in full effect. I was, you know, I was you pretty, you pretty much couldn't shut me up about political stuff. <laughs> very, very vocal about those kinds of things. Um, and so that, that, that's, I think that's, that's, you asked, that's where I guess I was a, a shy initially kid and then a loudmouth after, <laughs> by the end of it all. <laughs> that kind of fits, I think. Yeah, and that's, it's kind of good. And it's go. not like I'd label you a loudmouth, but I just love how you can talk. And I love how you will argue. And I love how you have lots to say about everything. It's one of my favorite things about you. Oh, yeah. There's never, ever, ever a lack of conversation. Ever a moment of silence. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm not that dissimilar. I'm not all that comfortable with awkward silences. And it's like, talk, say something. Somebody say something, you know, and amuse me, you know, make me laugh, you know, my favorite thing. So what do you do when you're not busy lawyering? What's your outside pastimes? My goodness. Um, During COVID, it's been... I mean, my wife and I have managed to work remotely um, while at the same time taking our two dogs and cat to, uh, you know, various cottages around Ontario and Quebec um, and sort of isolating ourselves in that respect. Um, Now that things are opening up again, I'm able to go back to the, you know, some of the activities that I did. I play a lot of tennis, um, so I I enjoy that. Um, Other than that, I'm, you know, around here, around the house, um, being dad to the dogs and the cat and trying to entertain my wife, keep up my level of conversation. (laughs) It's been a tricky time, hasn't it, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah, it's been been crazy. Here's just a bonus question, and I'm going to ask you this because someone asked it to me the other day, and I thought it was kind of fascinating. What's the most important thing you learned about yourself because of COVID? That I really am able to function with a smaller circle around me. That I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of an introvert in a way that I, I always kind of knew I was, but, um, but I, I think I'm able to uh, function. Some people go crazy. They go stir crazy if they can't be around people all the time. I'm not that way. I like to be around people and I have a really close group of friends who I, I love to see. But at the same time, I'm kind of able to um, pull away from that and just have it be me and my wife, um, you know, and, 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 and that was fine. It was, it, was, it was less of a struggle than I thought it would be being isolated and not going, you know, to restaurants or movies or things like that. Um, maybe that's just because I have a really cool wife and she's able to, um, entertain me and, and make our lives interesting. I always say I have a hashtag curated life because she, she plans these elaborate dinners and and cottages and things like that. And and now that we're finally able to travel vacation. So, you know, that was maybe the toughest part was not traveling because we did a lot of traveling before COVID. Um, we've kind of gone all over the place, India, Europe, certain the US, we've done a lot of traveling. And so when COVID hit, we thought, well, now we won't be able to travel. Well, no, my 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 wife, who is, you know, very interested in 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 moving around and uh finding interesting things for us to do, she's she found some great properties up for us to rent. So we 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 travel in a different way. Nice. That sounds really good. Yeah. Sounds really good. Um 
if you hadn't become a lawyer, you mentioned maybe that you were really interested in medicine and science, but if you hadn't become a lawyer at this stage in your life, what career path would you have chosen? Yeah, I mean, I think I, it, it, you know, that's kind of easy for me. It was either going to be medicine or law. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think I would have at least tried my hand at medicine. I don't know how good I would have been at it, um, but it, it's certainly something that I would have been interested in. Mm-hmm. And what do you think the next five years look like for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, hopefully kind of like this, um, you know, I'm in a a nice spot now at work. I really enjoy what I do. I've got sort of a a newfound appreciation for it, given what I've, you know, been through over the last couple of years, um, with my health. Um, I'm really just looking forward to enjoying my life, which I, I realize now has so many gifts, um, just built into it. I'm I'm just looking forward to that and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. taking every day um, as a gift, which is ironic and cliche, but absolutely true. Um, So yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to, to this, what I'm doing, having this conversation with you, like meeting people and actually connecting on, on a meaningful level. That's, that's what matters to me now. Mm, I think that's gorgeous. And I, I don't think it's ironic or cliche at all. Because the flip side of that is that you could have become so engrossed in the difficult time that you've been through and identified with yourself in illness and struggle and pain. So for you to come out on the other side of this, grateful and looking forward, um, seeing your life as a gift is, uh, is, is a gift, a gift to all of us. Well yeah. Done. I mean, I think, I think we have, we have an idea of ourselves, um, we paint this picture, this really colorful story of who we are, um, you know, and we think that that's the truth. I, I've, I've let go a little bit of that illusion. I think that we are this one thing that, and we are a story. We, I think fundamentally we're, we're way more than that. Um, we're more than the sum of our parts. I'm, I'm not just a lawyer or a husband or, you know, a, 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 a a male in this society, a 50 plus year old guy right now. And I'm, I'm way more than that. Um, and it's taken a long time to figure that out that I don't have to, you know, put on my lawyer face when I'm being a lawyer, I can just be a human being in a situation and, and, Mm -hmm. and take that for what it is. So, you know, these kinds of situations in your life, they, they quickly, um, strip you of, of certain illusions that you've been carrying around. Um, they don't do it quickly. They tend to do it over time and it takes a bit of time, but uh, that that's been an important education for me anyway. Mm, good one. Well said, very well said. Um, and so you've been at this uh, very serious med mail work for 20 plus years yeah, yeah or longer, 20 plus years. 20 plus what is years. it that, what is it that still keeps you going? What gets you up in the morning? Um, the fact that I'm needed, the fact that I can do something, the fact that I think I have developed a set of skills, a set of um, principles that I can live through, um, the fact that I, I have experience now um, to, you know, really affect people's lives in a positive way. Um, that's it. I mean, you know, professionally, that's what keeps me going on the personal side. I have, 
you know, I have, you know, just a remarkable wife who I can't say enough about, who, you know, I'm, I'm just lucky to be, you know, with every day. And I have a great family. My parents are terrific. My, I got friends who, who care for me and I've expressed that, um, you know, over the last little while in ways that we don't always do because, you know, you're supposed to be tough and then, you know, not, not be open and, and vulnerable, as you've said. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. Mm, good. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Just yeah. people, the relationships and the love and what's for dinner tonight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily have, you know, any one thing that's driving me from day to day. Um, it, it really is about the different challenges um, that we have in our work, in our life that, uh, that come up, you know, like waves sometimes, and you get to ride those waves, um, mm-hmm. or you can, or you can get buried or drown in them. But I prefer to ride them now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Stay, stay alive and well, the best that you can. You know, I remember the last time we were together in person was in the Bahamas, and yeah, we we sat down, we had this brainstorming session one night about um, it was kind of on marketing strategies and things like that. And yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I, I remember asking everybody, there are 15 or 20 lawyers there and asking everybody, why do you do this work? And, and a lot of answers came out that were kind of, um, you know, I felt a little self-serving. There's a lot of money. Uh, it's important work. There's this and there's this and there's this. And we can get people a lot of money. And Wait a minute. So people are making money at this? Yeah, that's what I hear. What? <laughs> yeah. Lawyers <laughs> make money. I heard no that. No way. <laughs> yeah, you might be somewhere in the top 10%, but don't quote me on that. I'm not, oh, I'm not positive. Okay. But anyway, I can remember, and it might've been you who said this, someone just blurted out because these people need us. And I was like, that is it. That's your why. And you opened with that. And I'm really grateful to hear that from you. I mean, that's the reason to do anything in life um, is to make the world a better place. And, and when you said that these people need us, I'm like, right, that is your best marketing strategy you could ever have. It's not a billboard. It's not the side of a bus. It's not, this is the biggest award I got. It's like people need, you're here because people need you and you provide a valuable service. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the biggest guy for marketing, you know, I'm probably, I'm sure that people at my firm would, would agree with that and and would probably take me to task sometimes. I'm I'm more interested in outcomes. I'm more interested in yeah. you know making that difference. Um, it's great to have a big practice. Um, it's great to have you know important cases. But it's then again, what's an important case? I mean, everybody's case is important, right. um, it, you know, to them, and it's important to me. And you know, in a meaningful sense, I've I've had a number of trial cases now where the, the damages have been relatively modest, you know, when c- compared to, you know, a lot of the big files that I've settled. Um, but they're no less important. They're just as important. Um, whether you're fighting for, you know, $100,000 or $10 million, um, yeah. at the end of the day, you're fighting for somebody's um, livelihood, their well-being, sometimes their sanity, <laughs> Right, because they've right. been twisted into knots by the by a system that challenges everything that they say, challenges all their you know previous medical history, suggests that they did something wrong or that they didn't do what they were supposed to do. 
which is a lot of time what these people face, right? And let's, let's be honest. It's not just, oh, yeah, your procedure went wrong and that's why you got injured. It's no, your procedure, you know, was fine. And then you had this problem. You never called us and never came back and never complained. Or, you know, you were a smoker for 20 years. And so that's why you got this happening to you. And there's a lot of um, blame that goes into um, these cases, which and defense lawyers may not always see it, but it's keenly felt by, by clients and, and it's very, very personal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in addressing those injustices, whether they be financially or whether they be, you know, through, you know, a mediated settlement or a trial, something that at the end of the day, the client can say, I wasn't making it up. I'm not crazy. Mm, right. I, you know, this happened to me. Right. This happened to me. Yeah. Validation of the story. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's important. That's, that's, well, it's huge. Of course it is. Yeah. That's worth getting up for in the morning. Yeah. Good one. What's the stuff that keeps you awake at night? Boy, um, you got to about 10 hours. No, I mean, um, what keeps me awake at night is how easy it is to forget all the important stuff that we've been talking about, how easy it is to slide into complacency, whether it's, you know, to do with our environment um, and how easy it is to sort of be glib about that or, or forget about it, whether it's, uh, you know, overlooking the real inequalities in our healthcare system and our justice system. I mean, there's, we, we are only now starting to scratch the surface of how differently people of color, how differently women are treated by the healthcare system um, than somebody that might look like me or, or you. Um, And I have, I have so much more awareness of that now because it's just, uh, it's, it's almost unavoidable when you talk to, when I talk to um, a client of, uh, of color, the way they're treated in, in the system versus the way white people are treated in our system. Um, there are real gaps in, in what should be a fair system. And that keeps me up at night, you know, mm. uh, you know, I wonder, you know, we were talking about Andrew Somerville, he's a young white kid, you know, but he came in after having consumed some beer. Was he treated differently because he had the smell of alcohol in his breath? because that's something that was noted in the medical records. Was he dismissed yeah. because of that? Um, yeah. what, would, what would happen if Andrew had been black or indigenous or a woman mm-hmm. uh, or an indigenous woman? Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of treatment would that patient get? That keeps me up at night. That should keep us all up at night. Are we treating the people who um, we need to care for? Are we treating them less than? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's important. And as a lawyer, um, I'm always now aware of that too. Am I, am I judging someone? Am I less likely to believe their story? Um, you know, because sometimes the things that people say to you seem like, I can't believe a doctor would say that to you. Mm-hmm. And it keeps yeah, me up absolutely. at night. Yeah. Mm. That's big stuff, Alex. You know, I mean, some people just wonder if they turned off the oven. <laughs> <laughs> I do that. But that's... <laughs> Did I close the garage door when I left? <laughs> no, that's that's really good. And you know, I'd have to say some version of that is has been my big COVID lesson. And 
you know, I've always valued myself as being a very compassionate person who could look after whoever showed up at my doorstep in whatever situation they were in, whatever messy, messy mess brought them there, because it's not always pretty. But, um, you know, COVID has tested me in ways uh, that I couldn't have even imagined, like having to just uh, understand and accept people's decisions around vaccine, not vaccine, protest, not protest, mask, no mask. And within my own family, there's every single extreme you can imagine from people who have been vaccinated four times to people who will never, ever, ever, ever be vaccinated for a virus and people who are protesting in front of hospitals, which I wow. thought if anybody I know ever do, does that, that's, they're done. You know, they're you're cut done. off. Yeah. You're cut off. You're dead to me. It's over. And all right. those things have happened and I've had to dig deeper and look harder and love harder and accept further and really, you know, do the analysis is this issue worth tossing this 30, 30 year friendship away? Or do I need to go deep and accept that for whatever reason, this is the decision she's making about this issue at this time. So yeah, that's tough. So how do you balance that? Because I, I, I struggle with that. Yeah, I don't know that I have balanced it yet. Um, but I'm working on it. I'm working yeah. on it, but it's just shocking to me because I always thought, and especially in labor and delivery, you know, I mean, you very often have to deal with a mother who's made choices that have been unsafe for her her baby. You know that, whether it's drugs or alcohol or lack of prenatal care or a million other things. Um, and you've had, I've had to learn how to be okay with that. You know, when people's decisions hurt and harm someone else besides themselves. So um, anyway, uh, it's a new level and I wouldn't say it's been a pretty process and I wouldn't say I'm there, but I'm just interested. I think it's not dissimilar to what you were saying, just opening up your eyes to what's really going on in the world and finding a way to make some peace with it and and not just be okay with it, but accept it somehow and carry on and still treating those people as people, you know, as real people that just have a different opinion. They are, they, yeah. they are. And then, then, then the challenge is how do you persuade in a way that's um, helpful and not, you know, yeah. doesn't just serve to push them away further or down their specific rabbit hole. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm a very strong proponent of vaccination and masks. Um, I think they frankly, you know, they, they're saving us right now from what could be so much worse. Um, I, I happen to believe in science. Um, I believe in the medicine. I, I, I have a really hard time understanding people who refuse to get vaccinated or wear a mask or who protest. But we're, we're going to have to figure out a way to have these conversations in a way that is compassionate and meaningful yeah. and not mm-hmm. insulting. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that myself, right? Mm-hmm. Because people have protests here in Toronto too about mask mandates and vaccination and all that stuff. And your initial gut reaction is to say like, go jump in a lake. Like, mm-hmm. what is your problem? Mm-hmm. Um, but we have different information silos in this country mm-hmm. and around the world. And we have Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Instagram that sort of isolate us more so than connect us sometimes. Yeah, and that's the truth. You know, my 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 version of reality is based on a different algorithm than than someone else's version of reality because they're they're just seeing things uh, on these little 
you know, devices that we hold in our hands constantly uh, mm -hmm. feeding us, you know, whatever they think we want to hear as opposed right. to what we should hear and what's in our collective best interest. And, and some of it goes even deeper. You know, I had my first vaccine in Miami. I was there last year. And uh, the girl who, the nurse who gave me the vaccine was uh, a Latino background. And she said, I've seen nothing but you white people in here today because she said Latin people don't trust their governments. They, they don't trust their governments. And so they are not coming, even the America, the U.S. government telling them that this is safe. They don't trust government, period. So yeah. the Latinos are not going to get vaccinated. Yeah. You see a so lot of that in certain indigenous communities around the world as well. Um, mm -hmm. The lack of trust and it's understandable, mm -hmm. right? I mean, these, these people have been victimized by those governments for a very long time. So yeah. There's a great deal of skepticism that that historically is is you know is is going to be brought to bear. Yeah. Um, so how do you connect with those communities, those people, not just on a community level, but on a one-on-one -on -one level? That that's a challenge, right? I mean, and right. we're we're facing it now. Uh, you know, you read now that there's this new Omicron variant right. that's coming in that's going to you know up potentially up, upend all of our progress. You know, how are we ever going to? get rid of COVID if we don't extend vaccines to Africa, you know, yeah. South America, if, if we're more concerned about patents for Pfizer and Moderna, mm -hmm. you know, for publicly funded and researched vaccines, then what, do, what does that say about us as a species about right. our willingness to not only do what's in the best interest for all of us, but what's ultimately in our best interest because right. there's no isolating us. If there's one thing that we should have learned by now is that we are not going to be able to isolate ourselves out of this. No, right? we're one big world, right? We are one big world. Right. Period. Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's um, move off that topic, although I'm 100% sure we can talk about that for a day or two. Mm -hmm. But two more questions for you. Um, what advice would you, if you could, go back and give to your younger self? Calm down, man. <laughs> <laughs> Calm yep. down. I mean, I still, I, I still have to give myself that advice. I'm, you know, I'm. I think um, I don't know. Maybe it's part of being like Serbian and and sort of, you know, emotional and passionate about, you know, pretty much everything that I that I do, my opinions or my work or whatever. I, I, I get very, very emotional. I've been very invested in those things very quickly. And, you know, it's great when you're fighting for your client to be, you know, emotional, but at some point you've got to, you've got to, you know, put the temperature down a, a little bit. So, you know, I think I've probably lost my cool more than I should have in situations where I probably could have kept it a little better, not to say that I was rude or anything, but you know, you get excited, hot under the collar, you get self-righteous um, very, very quickly in a, in a litigation environment, particularly when you're dealing with other people who are also very, very passionate about their beliefs. And, um, and, and so I think, the advice that I would give to myself is the same advice that I would give to myself now, which is just <laughs> take it down a notch. Slow <laughs> your old man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Calm down. Yeah. I don't think anyone ever won an argument by being the loudest in the room. 
right? Or, or repeating the same points over and over again. Even right. when you're right, that doesn't help you all the time. You got to sort of find your way through that. I mean, sometimes it's right. it's difficult because you, you just know that the points you're making are, are, are legitimate points and they're not being received in the way that you'd want to. But, you know, that's, that's the world, right? No one, not everyone's going to agree with you even when you're right, which I always That's am. right, which you always are. Of always. course, of course you always are. I've always known that about you. <laughs> Thank you. That's why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> so um, who has had a very important influence on your life, real or otherwise? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, my, my parents obviously have had a huge influence on me. They, you know, they moved to Canada when they were relatively young and that was a, you know in the 70s a time when it was you know not necessarily the thing to do to leave leave home and build a whole new life where you didn't know anyone they shaped who I was obviously my mom was very instrumental in you know making sure that I was well rounded my dad was very very you know um not overly disciplined, but was, was very much, you know, you got to work hard, um, at, at everything. Um, and so that was huge. Um, and then I got to say, my wife uh, has absolutely shaped me in, in, in a way that I, I never imagined I, I could be shaped in sort of later in life. Um, you know, there's a bit of an age gap between us, a 16 year age gap. She's a millennial. Um, and she, I think brings to bear, a certain energy and a certain open-mindedness um, of her generation. And that has permeated my, my life for the last seven and a half years. And, and it's been so much of the positive that you get, you know, you get stuck in certain ways of thinking. And then you, when you live with someone, you experience the world through their eyes in a way. Um, and, and if that, if, if that can't help, but shape how you see the world as well. So um, it definitely, definitely, um, has has been important for me she's definitely shaped the way i see the world and has i think changed me in a in a in a in a, in a meaningful and, and and definitely a good way <laughs> that is such a lovely thing to say about any partner i think yeah you know when i first met her i was a little bit like hmm, only because i knew you so well at that time yeah, and yeah. i was protective of you you know i mean <laughs> she just better be good yeah. And um, I ended up sitting beside her at dinner one night. And at the end of the dinner, I just thought she's just absolutely lovely. She is. She's just absolutely lovely. Yeah. And I'm glad you found each other and that you're still doing so very well. Yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. Well, listen, with that, I think we'll close this off. Um, I want to say thank you once again, Alex. It's just been the easiest, nicest, realest conversation I've had with anybody in a long time. Good. And, Me too. Yeah, easy. Um, I hope we see each other in the flash sometime before too much more time goes by. Let's do it. I, I was um, supposed to do a trial in Calgary. And, yeah. And I, now I don't have to do that trial in Calgary. So I would have come to see you. Good. But now it's not happening. Oh, well, that's too bad. So we, we resolved it. So it's, it's sorry. Well, I'm glad for that. I'm glad yeah. for that. But if you ever do yeah. end up this way, just get yourself here. You know, we'll have, we'll have a fun time. Yeah. For those of you, if you haven't heard it, uh, don't miss the longer podcast with Alex, where we talk about many, many things. Um, one of which is, is a tough journey where he's come out on the other side alive and well and doing beautifully and thriving. 
And uh, thank you so much for listening. We're glad you're here. And thank you so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Chris. The pleasure is mine. Bye. Adios.